Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 704 with Dory Clark. She's back talking about how to think long-term in a short-term world. So learn one, the three barriers to long-term strategic thinking. Two, the top two skills that make you indispensable. And three, what to do when you're stuck in a rut. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to as we've referenced, please drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep704. And if you're hanging out at Awesome At Your Job, check out some things like our Gold Nugget summary emails, the full text searchable transcript of every episode, and other goodies at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Dory's story. Dory Clark helps individuals and companies get their best ideas heard in a crowded, noisy world. She's been named one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50 and has been honored as the number one communications coach in the world at the Marshall Goldsmith Coaching Awards. She's a keynote speaker and teaches for Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and Columbia Business School. She's the author of Entrepreneurial You, which was named to one of Forbes' top five business books of the year, as well as Reinventing You and Stand Out, which was named the number one leadership book of the year by Inc. Magazine. Dory is a former presidential campaign spokeswoman, and she's been described by the New York Times as an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make changes in their lives. She's a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review and consults and speaks for clients such as Google, Yale University, and the World Bank. She is a graduate of Harvard Divinity School, a producer of a multiple Grammy award-winning jazz album, and a Broadway investor. So huge thanks to Dory for taking some time and sharing some wisdom, and huge thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Dory. Dory, welcome back to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Hey, Pete. It's so good to be back with you. Well, I'm so excited to dig into your wisdom once again. And one exciting thing that you've mentioned, I think the world needs to hear, is that you have written a musical. Yes, I have. What is the story here? (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is a process uh, that started about five years ago. I actually write about this in my new book, The Long Game. Uh, I'm a big fan of long-term goals, 10-year plans. And so in 2016, I decided that my 10-year goal was going to be that I would write a show that would make it onto Broadway. And uh, so I have been assiduously pursuing this. I was literally starting from zero because I had no training or experience in writing Broadway or, you know, music theater type shows. And uh, so since then, as I was mentioning earlier, I was 
Well, first I applied and was rejected. And then I applied and was finally accepted into a training program of a kind of prestigious training program that BMI, the music publishing company, runs. And uh, so I've been through that. I'm part of their advanced workshop now, have learned to write musical theater and in fact have written one, which I am now shopping around to producers and to, to regional theaters. So it's just working the network and getting it out there. But I have written a sexy lesbian spy musical called Absolute Zero. So you heard it here first, uh, <laughs> God willing, 2026 Broadway season. I just have so many follow-up questions <laughs> in terms of how that's going to unfold, but I'll just wait to see it in, in theaters. You're going to love it. It's going to create a whole new genre. <laughs> I appreciate in and of itself when things cannot be easily defined. Original genres, appreciate them. All right. Cool. Well, now something that you have a bit more experience writing is nonfiction books that help people be awesome at their jobs. And it sounds like you got another hit on your hands with The Long Game. Tell us, uh, what's the big idea here? Thank you, my man. Yes, this is my fourth. So I've been flexing my muscles for a while with uh, with business and career books. So the new book is called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And basically, it's about how to apply the principles of strategic thinking to your life and your career so that you can get better results. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, that, that, sounds, that sounds super helpful. And, and tell us, long-term thinking, is that something that professionals have a shortage of these days? How would you assess the health of the the long-term thinking game these days? Well, the broad state of affairs is not great. Partly, of course, that's human nature, right? I mean, everybody likes a little bit of instant gratification if you get down to it. But also, things have become harder for a couple of reasons. One is just in our society in general, even pre-COVID, I think most of us would recognize that there are a lot of forces conspiring to encourage short-term thinking. We have, at the corporate level, you have the push for quarterly earnings and, you know, how that trickles down to everybody about uh, trying to, to get results, sometimes with uh, really negative consequences and corners being cut uh, in the, the Volkswagen or the Wells Fargo type of situation. And in our personal lives, we're 10, 20 years into our social media era. And a factor that has always impacted people, which is looking around and comparing yourself to other people, we always had that. But now we're comparing ourselves literally to the whole world. And that can be uh, a little demoralizing sometimes. So there's a push towards short-term thinking. And then you take that and you put COVID on top of it, where all of our plans got blown up suddenly. All we can do is react and be short-term because we don't know what's coming down the pike. So it's a lot of pressure in that direction. And so it is my hope that this book in some ways can actually help us overcome that and put a stake in the ground because when we have been in reactive mode for so long, it's, of course, it's a good skill. You know, you want to be agile, you want to pivot, you know how to, you want to know how to be able to respond to change. But also, that can't be the only thing you do. We need to start making plans again. We need to be reclaiming our lives and coming up with the visions of where we want to go so that we are driving the train, not just responding to external stimuli. And for me, that's what playing the long game really is about. Mm-hmm. Well, playing the long game seems like the prudent, wise thing to do. And I'm, I'm thinking about 
I've been reading some, you know, Aesop's fables type things to, to my children. And so we, we've got those, those stories about, you know, the ant and the grasshopper and storing things for the winter and, you know, the tortoise and the hare and sticking with it over, over the long haul. So, so I, I think that I, I'm, I'm guessing the, the milieu is that, well, yeah, hey, you know, long-term thinking is probably a good and virtuous thing I should be doing. Uh, but could you could you lay it on us in terms of some of like the benefits for people with careers? Like, no, seriously, if you do this, you can expect these fabulous results to come to you. And if you don't, here's what you're risking. Absolutely. Well, let me let me give you one example. I get asked sometimes, who's an example of someone who's a good long-term thinker? And one person who honestly stands out of course, he has his own challenges in terms of his essentially world domination. But leaving that aside, Jeff Bezos is actually a really remarkable example of a long-term thinker. And I think back in 2011, he did an interview with Wired Magazine that I think is very telling. They asked him, okay, what is your secret secret to your success? What is the secret to Amazon's success? And of course, this was 10 years ago. This is before Amazon became, uh, it was successful, but it was before it became the behemoth that it is today. And what he said was, what makes Amazon special is that our competitors are only willing to plan on a three-year horizon. We are willing to plan on a seven-year horizon and invest in a seven-year horizon. And because of that, we are able to take on bigger, more monumental, more potentially game-changing projects than they are. And that is the difference. And so we go a decade out and we see, oh my goodness, Amazon Web Services, we see Amazon Prime. These were bets that they laid years ago and they took time to pay off, but now it's created a massive competitive moat between Amazon and other players. And it's the same thing for our own lives and our own careers. If you are willing to invest now and you keep at it assiduously while everybody else is just saying, eh, that doesn't make any sense. Ah, what a waste of time. By the time they actually figure out the value of what you've done, they really can't even catch up. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I like that a lot. And, and I think, and, and Dory, I don't know, I read so much of the stuff you've written, and this might be from you, <laughs> that with that Amazon example, uh, I think Bezos often is also said to make have commented that he really tries to focus on things that he does not expect to change in terms of I he said will p- 10 years from now will people want to pay less yes I think that that will not change people still like low prices and like and 10 years from now will people still want things faster or will that change in terms of like, you know what, I'd rather have it in five days. Like, no, we think they, and so, and with that confidence, they say, all right, well, we're pretty sure that people will want the prices low and will want it fast 10 years from now. Thusly, we can invest big on doing what it takes to, to make that happen. So yeah, that's really resonant. And so maybe can you, can you bring it into like careers then if, if we're playing the long game with our careers, what are some things that, that we can bank on as, uh, employers and, uh, the marketplace will really want from us, uh, years from now. Absolutely. So one of the sections that I have in the long game is actually talking about, again, to take a corporate example, but bring it down to the granular of how we apply it in our own lives. Most of your listeners are probably familiar with uh, Google and their famous 20% time policy. And this is the idea that Google pioneered. Uh, well, they, to be fair, 
uh, 3M, the post-it company, actually came up with it originally as uh, 15% time. Google adopted it. They even expanded it, made it 20% time. But it really came to public prominence with Google. And their concept is that employees should be able to spend up to a fifth of their time working on essentially speculative projects outside the scope of their regular job. But it should be things that they find interesting, obviously, but things that they believe would help the company. And that is how some some of Google's biggest innovations, like Google News and Gmail, got created. And now the caveat, the asterisk on all of this, interestingly enough, even most Google employees don't do this. About 10% of Google employees actually do 20% time, which is this very low statistic, right? You might say, oh, well, that's ridiculous. Why should we even take seriously this thing if the company that's preaching it doesn't do it? But actually, I think it's an important point for us to plumb. We know that it is not easy to carve out 20% time. You have to really be forceful in creating a fence around it. It is always easier to just lean into doing your existing job. Oh, I've got meetings. Oh, I've got e- emails to answer. And so you allocate that time accordingly. I get it. But if you are fencing off time for essentially your own professional development for learning things, trying things where you are developing new skills and exploring new areas. This becomes your insurance policy for the future. COVID showed us that we have no freaking idea what is going to happen, right? We just don't know. And so we can make educated guesses and we can plan for the future. But really the best thing that all of us can be doing is turning ourselves into Swiss army knives where we are not overly optimized for one task because that task could change. The company could change. It might not need it anymore. What we need to do in 20% time is a really good vehicle to do it is to allocate part of our time to proactive professional development. So we're learning new things and have new skills that we can fall back on if we need to. And it also opens up new opportunities as well. So I think that's that's one clear takeaway that can be very useful for people in the present moment. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so I like the notion of becoming a, a Swiss army knife and then and proactive professional development and and being on a bulletproof or in, invincible, depending on the, the winds of, of change and, and sway and stuff. And so I, I guess I'm thinking, what are some of the, the top skills or I'm actually visualizing literally a Swiss army knife, the bottle opener, you know, the screwdriver, the tweezers, the scissors, you know, everybody's going to love you if you can open bottles. I say yeah. go for that one. And then the hook, the little hook. I always found that tricky. Apparently it's for when you're carrying boxes wrapped in twine. Oh. Okay. Now, now, you know, if you were curious, you could also pull out stakes with, uh, with a fishing wire I've learned. So anyway, so what's army knife has a lot of tools. What do you think are some of the, the top tools, skills that professionals should work to be developing that, that are timeless? Because on the one hand, I'm thinking, well, hey, a lot of artificial intelligence stuff, for example, is hot. And so, and then like a coding language like Python or something is something that you say, oh, oh, maybe that'd be good to know. But then again, maybe that'll be irrelevant in, in six years. So, ah, help us, Dory. How, how do we <laughs> think through what are the skills we are really worth investing in building? That's right, Pete. Absolutely. I'm going to answer it in a couple different ways. So the first one, props to you, my man, is a really simple starting point that people could do is uh, actually LinkedIn learning courses. There you go. And I'm an instructor. You're an instructor. And in fact, 
both of us were fortunate enough that some of our courses were among the top 20 most popular of the year. So actually just diving in and immersing yourself in that is a really good, simple way. I mean, these courses are not long. This is something you can do on your lunch break, but that's a good regular way that you can begin to just take time that often might have been deployed for other purposes, maybe just messing around, maybe answering emails, and actually really investing in learning. So that's one low-hanging fruit. But also, I think it is true, of course, we can we can all envision that, you know, oh, I should learn about 3D printing or something like that. What are the things of the future? If you are interested in those things, then Godspeed, go do it. That's great. I also want to argue that there is merit in learning about things that might seem completely irrelevant. And my example, in fact, I consider musical theater to be my 20% time activity. And it might sound frivolous in some ways, like, well, what does that have to do with being a business author? And on the surface, eh, I don't really know. But what I do know is I am not only learning learning skills about how to do a particular thing, lyric writing, book writing, whatever, those are those are really powerful. And you can argue that there's some overlay in terms of the story arcs and narrative and how it applies to my book. But also from a networking perspective, I am meeting massively different types of people. There's a lot of interesting development of who I'm connecting with and what I know. And it's giving me access to a whole new canon of knowledge. And so I can tell you that it's been, there are examples where I'm meeting people in the business world and I'm able to connect with them better because I have additional knowledge that I can bring to bear about theater, if that is in fact one of their interests. So even something that seems really like, oh, why would you do that? There actually can be a lot of surprise hidden value in it. I mean, it's the equivalent of the well-worn example of Steve Jobs studying calligraphy. Like, well, what did that matter? Well, it turns out it can create a design orientation that actually can be very influential, but we couldn't have predicted it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is cool. Okay. Well, so then in terms of the the 20% time, it's like we, it's a combo then of what do you find really fascinating? Go for it. And then what do you think <laughs> you just can't see any connection whatsoever? Don't let that stop you. And then LinkedIn learning is, is one quick and easy and, and fun resource to get in there. And so I'm curious then, are there any and I'm sure this will vary as the years unfold, or maybe it won't at all. And that's the point. What would be some of the top skills you you think, boy, every professional can really benefit from sharpening these skills? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, with the proviso that that honestly, if you want to keep yourself motivated, the most important thing is that it should be interesting to you. But I would say in my own experience, things that are super valuable one, probably the biggest that I'd put at the top of the list is public speaking. And part of the reason that I do this is there's some very interesting research that was done a few years ago by the Center for Talent Innovation, which is a think tank in New York. And they were studying the concept of executive presence, which is essentially this idea, this very poorly defined idea of somebody looking like a leader or seeming like a leader. Like, what does that mean? And so they wanted to break that down because a lot of people talk about, oh, you know, he's got executive presence, but he doesn't. And so, okay, what are they talking about? And one of the key components that it turned out people were implicitly referring to is people's public speaking ability. And it kind of makes sense because if we think about 
for instance, how our country, how countries in general, elect leaders. What are the trials that we put them through? Well, it's usually debates, it's town hall meetings, it's rallies. It's all about your public speaking. So a very low-hanging fruit where someone can get a dramatic ROI from investing time and effort is actually becoming a better public speaker. So I would put that at the top of the list. I'm also partial to communications in general, given that I started my career as a marketing strategy consultant. But I would say that effective copywriting, persuasive sales writing is one of the most important skills, whether you're literally selling something or whether you are a regular professional trying to sell your boss on an idea or trying to get a client to take a concept and let you run with it. Sales copy, which is different than regular writing. Persuasive sales copy is an incredibly valuable skill to have. So I would probably put those two at the top of the list. All right, beautiful. And so then beyond just simply learning, training, skills development, what are some other ways that you recommend we can shift our thinking away from the the short-term and and to the long-term? Are there any sort of key questions or prompts or exercises you recommend folks go through to get more in the long-term zone? Yeah, I love that question. So when we think about how do we reorient ourselves, one of the most important starting points is actually just at a very basic level, creating the white space necessary to be able to have those conversations, whether it's literally a conversation with a colleague or just an internal reckoning with yourself. It is not that it takes a huge amount of time to do strategic thinking. It does not, but it takes some time. And one of the problems that I see with a lot of the the clients that I work with and colleagues around me is that they literally have no time for this because they are so packed to the gills with their scheduling. They're constantly racing around. They don't have a moment to breathe. And therefore, they really don't have a moment to ask very fundamental questions about what they're doing, why they're doing it, if it's the right thing to be doing. Nobody wants to be the person that is optimizing perfectly for the wrong goal or the wrong outcome. So I think that one of the very best things we can do to begin to give ourselves the space to ask these questions is to actually just create a little room on our calendar. This obviously is easier said than done, but I think we need to start becoming a lot more ruthless in terms of what we accept. Something that that doesn't get talked about, this this is a skill you need to develop, although no one will tell you this. The things you said yes to earlier in your career, if you are going to be successful, you need to stop. You need to regularly reevaluate and create tighter and tighter criteria for what actually gets on your schedule. And this is an essential part of being a strategic and long-term thinker. I find that actually pretty inspiring, Dorian. I don't know if if that's the reaction you get very often. (laughs) Tighter and tighter criteria. Oh boy. But I think it's true in that I'm thinking about just, hey, this podcast, 700 episodes in, That's exactly what's happened in terms of the criteria get tighter and tighter and tighter with regard to what guest gets in, which parts of the interview stay versus get edited out. And then likewise, just as a function, I think the percentage of incoming pitches that are thumbs up gets smaller and smaller as well. Yeah. I mean, when you were first starting, you probably would have interviewed my cat. (laughs) That's what it's like when you start. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm thinking about how I might make a case for that <laughs> in terms of, well, well, cute animal photos have been shown to relieve stress. He could go viral. I mean, he's, <laughs> yeah. Cats have been known <laughs> to go to go viral. Well, so then can you make that all the more real and specific for us in terms of maybe in your own schedule or, or others that you've you've coached or work with and how you've seen, hey, this used to be okay and now it's not. And here's some some particular filters or rules or or criteria I'm using now that determine what gets the yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually go into a lot of detail about this in the long game because I, I think your question points to something important, which is the specifics actually really matter here because you can say all you want. Oh, you should just say no more often. And that's great. But people are like, OK, you jerk. Like, how do I do it? Yeah. <laughs> so you need to to really understand uh, the mechanics and the scripts and how do you draw these criteria? So, I mean, just to give you an example, when I first started my business, uh, I've been working for myself for 15 years. I didn't know anybody, right? Like when you're starting in a career or you're, you know, you're starting at a job, you don't know anybody. And so therefore you don't even know who's worth your time. And at that moment, it's actually good to say yes to everybody because it's not like you have so many other important things to do. And it's not like there's so many people fighting to spend time with you. If you have an opportunity for a networking engagement, you should probably do it, right? So early on, the filter should be very wide. But over time, people do begin to seek you out more. And so you've got to narrow it. So some examples. Early on, I was so happy that anyone would like talk to me. I would immediately offer to go to them, you know, oh, where do you want to meet? When do you want to meet? And so I would I would accept these things where I'd be taking like a 45 minute train ride into the city to go see somebody at some inconvenient place. I'd be coming back. I would literally have spent half a day in a networking meeting with someone. I mean, now a half a day is extraordinarily valuable. I think about how much revenue or all the things I could be doing. But back in the day, I would say yes to that. So over time, I slowly tightened it and say, okay, well, maybe I'd meet with them, but I'm not, I'm not going to just offer to go to them. I would either make them come to me and, you know, meet near me, or I would only do it if I was already going to be in their neighborhood. Also, I used to meet with people, you know, hey, let's have a networking meeting for like pretty much no reason. It could be, you know, somebody suggested we might like each other, something like that. Now I actually need a pretty compelling reason. Like, well, what do you want to talk about? Like, what's what's the goal? Why why is it that that we should connect? Because oftentimes what I what I would discover that I didn't know is that people actually had they had an agenda. They just wouldn't state it. It was often like to sell something to you. And so it's important to understand what's behind all of that. So that's a piece of it. You can also if you want to do the meeting, you're not sure if you can say no. Another strategy that I use is find a way that you can downgrade it, but still say yes. So you might say, oh, Dory, can we have coffee? You know, can we have lunch? And if I want to be careful, I don't want to offend you or something, or I feel like I should say yes. I might say, oh, thank you, Pete. I'd love to do it. That would be great. My schedule's super crazy. I can't do lunch, but how about a call? Can we do a call next week? And so that way, instead of lunch, which might be two hours, two and a half hours, like getting there and then a lunch, the call is a tight 30 and then you can log off. So you've essentially found a way to still say yes, but save yourself 90 minutes. And all of that adds up over time. Mm -hmm. Well, Dory, I like this so much. It's funny, just recently, I think I was getting a new insurance quote and someone said they, they propose because sometimes this is very easy 
to do. So we said, oh, hey, when's a good time we can we can hop on a call for me to walk you through uh, point by point all the elements of this plan? And I was like, wow, I never want to do that. <laughs> Maybe yeah, that might be prudent, uh, depending on the nature of the insurance product and what's at stake. And there's a lot of points of differentiation between that insurance product and, their, and the competition. Maybe that, that might be well with your time. But, but for me, it wasn't. It was small, small potatoes insurance. And I thought, wow, do people really say yes to this? And, and so I was able to, I was like, oh, would it be possible for instead for you to email me the policy and, and share with me the, the, the key points and the price? That's right. And so I think I know what they're, what they're doing. I think from like a sales process, I'm sure the studies have shown you get a higher conversion rate if you have like a relationship and some engagement and some, and, and some conversation. But I probably just wanted to say, yes, thank you for this insurance and move on to, to something else. So sometimes it's easy, but for me, it's rare. And it's funny. And as you share those things, I've had those thoughts. So let's just get real about emotions here. And sometimes I will also have thoughts to be like, Pete, who the heck do you think you are? No, now you're big time, huh? Oh, you're so important now that you can't be bothered to have lunch. Do you're good? You're right. So I've got some internal dialogues in terms of like, well, well, no, I can have a spreadsheet that could show you that that time is better placed somewhere else from like a from a business development perspective. Like that's that's a fact. And then there's also, uh, but then sometimes it's more fuzzy. Like, well, I don't really know what's going to be make a bigger impact. Hard to say. But but then there's also a little bit of the, oh, oh, so, so now I'm too good. And like, it's like, I don't want to become, I don't know what, like the antihero I'm looking for here, the villain I'm trying to paint here, not Scrooge McDuck swimming in money, but like, (laughs) or like Scrooge, help me out here. Like, I still want to be a generous person who is not corrupted by success as I grow. But I, I guess that's, that's part of the long game is our time will become increasingly more valuable. We will need to say more often, how do we deal with that? (laughs) Right. Well, I think you're pointing to something important, which is that there's a lot of layers to this, right? It's not just a strictly rational ROI uh, calculator, essentially. But I, I think there's a few ways to think about this. And also, of course, it depends who's asking. I think sometimes, again, when we are less experienced, We often, at least me, I would essentially fall prey to people, just, you know, anyone who'd be like, hey, want to have coffee? And I would just assume like the the correct answer is yes. Okay, yes. (laughs) And then meanwhile, you come and it's it's some of a sales pitch or something where it's it's almost like you've been tricked or strong armed into it. Mm -hmm. Or if it's not a sales pitch, maybe it's they want something. Oh, hey, Dory, I hear you write for so and so. Can you introduce me to blah, blah, blah? And it's like, oh, now I get it. Like, oh, you want a thing. That's why you want to connect. And so those those are things I do not feel bad screening out. I don't want some user who is taking advantage. And so I think partly it's about learning how to be more mindful if you feel like that vibe is coming off of someone. I think also, you know, the truth is I don't feel bad about saying no to people that are coming at you or coming at me in ways that are a little a little inappropriate. You know, I, I think that for me, when I was 22, when we were all 22, we would have the college career counselors would be like, oh, you should reach out to people and pick their brain. And many people, again, when you're 22, fine, but many people just kept with that and that's still their approach. And it should not be the approach of a seasoned professional. If you are dealing with someone, you want to be showing empathy 
for their situation. And if you know that that person is, and you know, you got to think about it, but if you actually, when you rationally think about it, realize this person is probably getting 10, 20, 50 (laughs) emails per week when with people asking for something, you have to be mindful of what your ask is and contextualize it properly. And so if you're just blithely saying, oh, can I have, you know, for no reason at all, an undifferentiated amount of your time, that's actually not really being a sophisticated uh, consumer. And so I, I think that that we need to, we all need to be more thoughtful in terms of how we approach people. I actually did an analysis of the emails that I received a while back. Mm. And I discovered that in the course of a week, I got somewhere between 10 and 11 requests per day for something. Now, sometimes it was a coffee or a meal. Sometimes it was a, hey, will you share this on social media? Sometimes it was a, will you blurb my book or will you do this? And, you know, many of them were from great friends and I would be glad to do it. That's totally fine. But we all have to recognize for ourselves and when we're dealing with others, if someone's getting 70 requests in a week, it is just foolish for that person to say yes to all of them. You have to triage and protect it so that I can say yes to you, Pete, and not some random person who is barging in with an inappropriate request. Yeah, that's good. But was that that Jim Carrey where he says yes? Is it yes, man? He says yes. (laughs) all the all the chaos that ensues with with a yes to everything. Yes, that's helpful and thought-provoking both in terms of as the requester and the potential grantor of requests like how to do that well. So so well, well thanks Dory, you went really deep there. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's zoom out for a bit. Any other critical ideas from the long game that you think folks looking to be awesome at their jobs should know about? Yeah, well I'll just add one one piece to where we were going before, which is ultimately, if you want to actually be true to your vision, if you actually want to accomplish whatever your long-term goal is, it is not just about the people around you and saying no. We often fail to think about the opportunity cost. When some request or something is coming at us, some opportunity, we often think, should I do this thing or not? And that's not really the right question. It is actually what we should be asking is, should I be doing this thing or any other thing in the world that would take approximately that amount of time? And so we have to contextualize it because if there is a goal that you truly care about, that needs to be a North Star in your mind so that you are carving out time so you can really do that and fulfilling your agenda rather than everyone else's agenda for you. So just connecting with that point, one area that I talk about that's related in the long game is a concept that I call being willing to say no to good things. Mm -hmm. We, of course, we understand that we should say no to the bad thing. I mean, that might be hard and you might worry that you're hurting people's feelings or something like that, but ultimately we get it. But where we really develop the kind of ninja level skill, and this is very hard for all of us, is that if we want to leave room to pursue what actually is great, you know, what is a great opportunity or a really important thing for us, if something is merely good, we also need to be willing to say no to that. And the discipline to do that is is really what can set us apart and make us extraordinary. Yeah, that's powerful. Boy, we, boy, Dory, we're two peas in a pod here. We, we talk about 
saying no. And the alternative is like everything else that you could be doing. And I remember the first time I learned about the concept of opportunity cost in an economics high school course, that freaked me out. It's <laughs> just like, holy crap. So you're saying, in, in choosing to do one thing, I'm saying no to everything else on the planet every time. Whoa. It shook me up actually for a few weeks, like a, a random random day in, uh, in economics class at Danville High School. But it's, it's the reality of the matter with regard to where you can funnel your time. And, and that's really powerful when you're thinking about those long-term objectives that you're shooting for and how to get there. I guess I'd want to hear your take in terms of, well, if it's diet or exercise or smoking or video games, anyway, there's a whole host of ways we humans have a knack (laughs) for going after that instant gratification at the expense of of long-term stuff. So do you have any tips or perspectives or reframes that can help people when they're in the heat of the battle and they have a temptation to do something that maybe feel good or, or short term. Yeah. When they it'd be better to do something more long term oriented. Oh, I mean, as someone who ate a large ice cream sundae last night, I can totally speak to this. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, but, you know, I, to be fair, I planned I planned that Sunday. I oh, saved good. up for that <laughs> Sunday. But nonetheless, uh, I think there's a couple of things that we can keep in mind. And one of them in the long game, I tell the story of a woman named Kim Cantorgiani, who was uh, busy Busy mom, busy wife, had a great job. She was a C-suite executive at a nonprofit. And the thing that always fell through the cracks was her health. And she had gained weight that she wanted to lose. And she just had not been able to do it. And ultimately for her, what proved successful is she created a poundathon campaign where she publicly pledged to all her friends and she got them signed up that for every pound she lost, that they would donate X amount of money to the local battered women's shelter. And so at that point, it became about something bigger than herself. It was, it was, she was going to be letting down other people if she did not lose weight. And so, uh, it, as she told me, she said, you know, after that, I really couldn't be, be seen, you know, walking around with, uh, chips and a, and a diet pepper after, <laughs> after that. So I think sometimes it's about external accountability and tapping into the bigger picture, the cause outside yourself. And the third point that I'll make is that oftentimes it's really about committing to a date certain for something. As humans, we love to blur the lines or make exceptions or, oh, you know, I could do this a little later. But uh, I tell the story of a woman named Sam Horn, who was very successful speaker, author, just running herself ragged in the pre-COVID world, you know, traveling everywhere, giving these talks. And she decided that what she really wanted to do, it had been a longstanding goal, is she wanted to move near the water and uh, and actually not just one place, not like get a lake house, but she wanted to spend an entire year as kind of a digital nomad uh, living by the water in beautiful places like Florida and Hawaii. And she ended up doing it, but she said the only reason was that she she just forced herself to commit. She circled October 1st on her calendar and she made herself happen. And she, she said, if I didn't have a date, I wouldn't have done it. Mm, that's good. Thank you. Well, Dory, tell me any final thoughts about the long game before you shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Ah, thank you. I I appreciate it, Pete. I will just mention for anybody that wants to dive in further to strategic thinking and and creating a long-term vision that I have a a free resource, which is a long game uh, strategic thinking self-assessment. And folks can get it for free at doryclark.com slash the long game. All right. Perfect. Thanks. 
Well, now could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? One of my favorite quotes is actually one from Theodore Roosevelt. And I love it because fundamentally, to me, long-term planning is important, but it's acting toward those long-term goals. It's about the action. And his quote is, in any moment of uncertainty, the best thing to do is the right thing. The next best thing to do is the wrong thing. And the worst thing to do is nothing. And so I think we learn by taking action. And to me, that quote exemplifies it. Mm, Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? So I, I have to pick a sentimental favorite. I actually talk a lot about this in uh, in the long game as well, is the, the famous marshmallow study oh, yes. uh, by Walter Michel talking about, do you take one marshmallow now or two if you wait 15 minutes? If we can figure out how to crack that code, that's, uh, that's the ultimate in long-term thinking. Mm-hmm. And a favorite book? One of the things that was most inspiring to me as I was starting my business and my business career was uh, the book Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion oh, by Robert Cialdini. Had him on the show. So amazing. He is. I mean, it's it's so beautifully written. It is so engaging. And I think has just taught me so much about life. So I, I really respect the work that he's done. Mm-hmm. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? Yes. A favorite tool that I use actually all the time is uh, is Google Translate. Uh, I feel like these days I'm working with so many people internationally and where I can at least learn a few phrases or say something uh, as a tip of the hat for them in their culture, I try to do that. Uh, so I enjoy using that tool for connecting with people across borders. Mm-hmm. And is there a key nugget you've been sharing that really seems to connect and resonate with folks they quote back to you often? Well, one of the things that I feel like seems to be resonating for people a lot, perhaps especially coming out of COVID, is a concept that I talk about in the long game called thinking in waves. And the the basic idea is that oftentimes when we feel stuck, we feel like we're in a rut. The problem is that we are essentially trying to just keep doing more of the same thing. And it's this, you know, the same thing that we're good at or the same thing that we've gotten results at. And unfortunately, one of the the things about being a successful human and a successful professional is that we actually have to do different things and we have to shift into a different wave. And so one of the most important things, I believe, is that we need to recognize, okay, which wave are we in and where, where are we in the cycle and how can we shift? So as just one example, for a lot of people, many of whom, frankly, have been kind of hard on themselves about this, they may have had to have had uh, a lot of extra home responsibilities or family responsibilities during COVID. And it's not like you had a lot of choice in that. That's sort of what the situation called for. We can't beat ourselves up about it. But the important thing is to recognize that if we are playing the long game legitimately, then we need to lengthen the time that we're looking at and realize that it's not necessarily about having perfect work-life balance, let's say, during a set period of time. During the past you know, 18 months, you probably didn't have very good work-life balance. But what you can do is actually make a choice to over-index in other areas. And once you are able to reallocate some of that energy toward work or toward non-family relationships like friends and deepening connections and things like that, or if you've been going crazy with work, working way too hard, that's fine in the short term. Sometimes you need to do that in order to be successful. But the problem comes when you do that always. 
And so it's just understanding what wave are you in and how can you transition successfully so that over a long enough period of time, you are getting the balance that you need. Lovely. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? One of the final challenges that I will suggest to people is in the long game, I talk about a concept that I call optimize for interesting. And we all know that uh, in our culture, oftentimes things are a little bit polarized, right? It's, it's either, and according to the conversation, it's either that we're optimizing for our passion or we're just, you know, making money. Okay, let's get some money. I feel like those are fine options. They all have their limitations. But because not all of us necessarily even know what our passion is, or it might change over time, or maybe your passion isn't something that you can or that you want to monetize, what I like to suggest that we have as one potential orientation is the idea of optimizing for interesting. Because even if you don't know what your passion is, for sure you know what you find interesting. There's hobbies, there's things, you know what, some people really like birds. Guess what? Mm -hmm. If you like birds, you know it. If you're not into birds, you also know that. Some people are into <laughs> wine. Some people are into golf. Some people are into football. Some people are, are into theater. Optimize and try to direct your discretionary time and learning and knowledge and effort toward things that you find interesting. And you really can't go wrong because you will enjoy the process. You will get more data and you will learn things about yourself. And if it stops being interesting, no problem. Just pivot to something else. Mm -hmm. Dory, thank you. It's always a treat. I wish you much success in the long game. Pete, thank you. Always a pleasure to be here with you. I really appreciate Dory's take on how the things you said yes to earlier in your career, in order to be successful, you need to stop them, to reevaluate, create tighter criteria for what gets on the schedule. And I think what happens when you don't do that is either the schedule just gets crazy overwhelmed and overloaded and you're exhausted and burnt out and there's just too much because you continue to do the things you used to do on top of all the other new things that you need to be doing, or you just don't ever have the bandwidth available to tackle new, bigger, better challenges that, that grow and accelerate you and, and get you to some cool long-term places. So I think that's wise. It's uncomfortable, but knowing when is it time to stop doing certain things to keep that long-term growth trajectory rolling is important. And I appreciate Dory shining a spotlight right on that. So again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP704. I hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 